Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. What would have been the 86th birthday of the great Buddy Holly. And since I'm such a big fan, I thought I would say a few words about one of the true fathers of rock and roll, Although Elvis is always given credit as the king of rock and roll, and he certainly did quite a bit to sell it to the mass public, I would say that the two people most influential in creating rock and roll and rock music as it has existed since the mid to late 1950s were Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry. Of course, Chuck Berry was another singer-songwriter and as even Eric Clapton said, he wrote the rule book on playing lead guitar and rock music, that everything that everybody who came after him did in some way was influenced by Chuck Berry's guitar playing. And on the same note, for Buddy Holly, he pretty much invented the modern rock and roll group with two guitars, bass, and drums. That was not a formation that really existed before Buddy Holly he perfected that arrangement, made it famous, and was also a great songwriter, of course, in his own right, and did so much in so little time. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how much influence he had on later musicians, especially coming out of England and the British invasion of the 1960s. Of course, the most prominent would be the Beatles, who... Paul McCartney said that he and John Lennon wrote their first 40 songs trying to imitate Buddy Holly. Buddy had toured England, unlike a lot of the American big rock and roll stars at the time. Buddy did an extensive tour there, and even some of his records that didn't hit the top 10 in the United States were big, big hits in the United Kingdom. And he influenced not only the Beatles who, as I said, were, were directly influenced by him in their songwriting style, in 
the formation of their group. They even got the idea for the name Beatles from the Crickets, Buddy Holly's band. And of course, they made a a classic cover of his, his, my favorite of his songs, Words of Love. And the first song that they ever recorded back when the Beatles were called the Quarrymen with a few different personnel, but with John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison in the group was Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day. The very first thing they recorded along with a song Paul McCartney wrote called In Spite of All the Danger. So in addition to the direct influence on the Beatles, Paul McCartney himself was was a huge fan and eventually bought all of Buddy Holly's songs and his company owns them to this day. And one of the reasons he gave for this was to make sure that Maria Elena, Buddy Holly's widow, who is still with us today, would get paid. That turned out she had not been getting regular payments from the publishing company that previously owned the Buddy Holly material. And one reason that Paul McCartney gave was to make sure that she started getting paid regularly. The other reason is the Buddy Holly film. A lot of you may have seen Gary Busey's wonderful performance in a movie called The Buddy Holly Story. And that's where I first discovered Buddy Holly in 1979 when I was 13 or 14 years old. And of course, Gary Busey was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance. But I should mention that both his take on the Buddy Holly character and the story itself are completely fictional. Almost nothing that happens in that movie reflects the life of Buddy Holly. And to some extent, that was done on purpose. Without getting into the weeds, you'd have to read Philip Norman's Rave On or the other biography. Remembering Buddy Holly by John Goldrison and John Beecher. But there was a movie about Buddy Holly in the works where Gary Busey was going to play the drummer. And the real drummer from the Crickets, Jerry Allison, was also going to have a part in the movie. And there was all kinds of legal issues brought up by Maria Elena and others with using Buddy Holly's real life story. So They literally went and made a film called The Buddy Holly Story, which intentionally did not depict any of the real events of Buddy Holly's life. So I think number one in in one of the Facebook groups about Buddy Holly, someone brought this up and it was a great observation. The way Gary Busey portrayed Holly was as this kind of roughneck, disheveled, sloppy person. And and of course, Busey's own playing and singing, while very enjoyable in the movie, is not really very close to Buddy Holly. Buddy was a very meticulous guitar player. He played the leads on most of his early records before bringing on Tommy Alsop, who played the leads on records like It's So Easy and some of the records from that period. And I should say that period, one of the astounding things about all the songs that Buddy Holly wrote was that they were all written and recorded in about 18 months from the middle of 1957 until his death in early 1959. And unlike 
recording artists who might have their first album written years before they get a deal. Buddy Holly was a lot like the Beatles in this respect, that he had written a lot of songs before getting his record deal, but none of those songs are the ones that everybody remembers as the classics, that once he got the recording contract, he started writing much better songs, as the Beatles did, as uh, George Martin would tell you for the Beatles that, Well, out of everything they had when they came in for their first record, Love Me Do was about the best song. But, of course, they then came back with a song called Please Please Me. And from there on in, they wrote everything that you remember about the Beatles was after they got their recording contract. Same with Buddy Holly. They came up with the song That'll Be the Day. He and drummer Jerry Allison wrote this, although I suspect that a lot of the co-writing that Buddy Holly did with other people, he uh, was very generous about songwriting credits, and I suspect that Buddy did most of the writing there. Not to take anything away from Jerry Allison, who was a fantastic and underrated drummer. But getting back to the movie... Buddy was an accomplished guitar player for the time. I would put him up there with people like Scotty Moore, maybe not Chuck Berry, but uh, not too many people were like Chuck Berry in 1957. And even his rhythm playing was extremely clean. His brother said that even though his whole family was a musical family and the two brothers both played and performed with their guitars, that he said that Buddy Holly had this way of pressing the strings. He couldn't figure it out where it was just cleaner than anybody he had ever heard play before. And if you go and listen to the original recordings, you'll you'll see what I mean. Again, Buddy was a meticulous person. He was very concerned about his appearance. He was always dressing neatly. He would never have his shirt hanging out. He was not an impolite person. He was always very respectful. He was deeply Christian, as were all of his bandmates and his producer. His other bandmates uh, during the documentary, The Real Buddy Holly Story, actually said that on the road, they would get into these spirited discussions about the Bible. So not something you hear too many musical groups of any genre doing, I guess, other than Christian rock, probably, groups getting into on on the road on tour. And he was not violent as he's depicted in the movie. There was never any fist fight with Owen Bradley, the great Nashville producer. Owen Bradley never made racial epithets as far as Buddy Holly's music. They all tried their best during those sessions at DECA to make hit records with Buddy. And really, the, the fact was... They just didn't know how to produce this music. It was so new and the arrangement was so different than what they were used to. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. 
Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. Let me hear you say the words I want to hear. Darling, when you're near. And this is another great departure of the film from reality that they made Buddy Holly the producer of the band. And that this was actually an issue in his signing the, the contract with Brunswick and Coral. Late, no, Buddy Holly had a producer called Norman Petty, who I also want to talk about, who was very important, as important to Buddy Holly and the Crickets as George Martin was to the Beatles, I would argue, and is somewhat given a bad rap by you know the, the fans of Buddy Holly and, and the music industry in general for what they see as him taking advantage of them. I, I'm going to make a, a separate podcast called The the Left-Wing Myth of the Exploited Rock Musician. And you know, let's not forget that the same people who subscribe to all the other anti-capitalist nonsense, including the new version, Wokeism, these people all are the ones that advance this view that rock musicians are taken advantage of. And and Buddy did eventually have a dispute over money with Petty, but I would say it's not nearly as black and white as people make out. But we'll leave that aside for now. But Petty's importance to getting the sounds that made Buddy Holly and the Crickets famous can't be understated. And if you doubt that, just go to listen to the recordings made at DECA, including a recording of That'll Be the Day that just doesn't even hold a candle to what the Crickets did at Norman Petty's studio in Clovis, New Mexico. So he was a very important figure in getting the sound as much as I would say as George Martin and getting the Beatles sound that takes nothing away from the Beatles or Buddy Holly and their great songwriting and the great performances. But the producer was able to package that up in a way that, you know, as I said, Owen Bradley was a hit machine in Nashville, as was Bradley's barn where they recorded all kinds of huge classic country songs, but he couldn't find a way to produce the crickets in a way that, or Buddy Holly, I should, as a solo artist, in a way that would be marketable to the public. So, and I should also say on this whole racial thing, they they worked this narrative throughout the Buddy Holly story. And Jerry Allison was in particular horrified at the way his quasi character was displayed as being bigoted and racist in the movie. Of course, they changed the drummer's name to Jesse, and they changed the bass player's name to Ray Bob. The real names of the musicians in the crickets were Jerry Allison and Joe B. Maudlin. 
And little-known trivia, also the very first recording when they made That'll Be the Day, that was a musician named Larry Wellborn on bass who did not become a member of the Crickets when they put the group together. Another thing that just annoyed me was that one of the things about Buddy Holly was he loved innovation and new technology. He bought the very first Fender Stratocaster, not the first individual unit, but the first year they came out with the Stratocaster, 1954, he bought a Sunburst Strat, and that's what he recorded most of his records on. If if any of you have been to the Skeptic Songs website, which I usually promote using the URL TomMullenSings.com, you know that I have the 50th anniversary version of the 1954 Stratocaster, of course, Sunburst, to use with my project group, the Buddy or the Holidays. So uh, go check that out if you like. We made two recordings so far. One of that'll be the day and one of words of love. And of course, that's a lot of fun. And we hope that I, I hope that we can get the uh, the other guys back together to uh, record some more. But Buddy Holly always played a sunburst strat. The original one got stolen sometime in 1958 while they were on tour. And he bought another sunburst strat. And they don't even get that right in the movie. They got, I think, Gary Busey's playing a red, bright red Telecaster. So let's see what else is wrong with the movie. So to review, Buddy Holly was never a producer. He did not produce the Cricket's music. He didn't produce other acts for Coral and Brunswick. He didn't read music. They show him reading music in his New York apartment after the Cricket's break up. So he didn't write charts. The crickets themselves were very important to the Buddy Holly sound and did co-write some of the songs. And of course, the characters that replace Joe B and J.I., Jerry Allison, they called him J.I. because his middle name was Ivan, are unrecognizable, bear no resemblance to the real people. And while Buddy and the other crickets were very much admirers of African-American music and went on tour with African-American performers. The whole scene in the hotel where they pose as Sam Cooke's valets is also probably fiction. So basically they wrote an entertaining story about somebody who never existed, used Buddy Holly's name. And of course, I think Gary Busey does some great work as far as bringing a lot of spirit to the recordings one song in particular, the one, the first one you hear in the movie is a song called Rock Around with Ali V. That was written by Sonny Curtis, who was the guitar player who played on the Buddy Holly Sessions in Decca, which ended up yielding no hit record. And the great thing about the Buddy Holly story movie was that they did a much better version than what was produced in Nashville, not because of any shortcomings of Sonny Curtis or, or Buddy Holly, but again, they just didn't know how to produce that kind of rock and roll. So the, when you hear the version of rock around with Ollie V done by Buddy Holly, it's just lacking that drive and rhythm that the Busey band brings to it. Now I should say Sonny Curtis is an interesting character because he wrote that song and some others and he was the guitar player, the, as I said, in the Nashville sessions. 
Buddy Holly would go on to become the lead guitar player in the Crickets when they formed that band. But Sonny Curtis actually goes out on the road with Slim Whitman and decides not to go further with Buddy after the, the DECA sessions don't yield stardom for any of them. But after Buddy Holly dies, Sonny Curtis comes back to rejoin the Crickets or join the Crickets for the first time. And they had a different singer. And Sonny Curtis wrote their first single, which was not a big hit. It was called I Fought the Law. (laughs) So you may remember that the Bobby Fuller Four had a huge hit with I Fought the Law. And uh, my favorite version is the Clash version from the 1980s, or I think the late 1970s, actually. One that my bands back in the 80s used to cover And I still cover when I do solo acoustic gigs. So Sonny Curtis not only wrote Rock Around with Ali V, he wrote I Fought the Law. He also wrote the Mary Tyler Moore theme, Love is All Around, and sang. He was the singer on that record. And what's the other big hit you might remember? More Than I Can Say, which was a big hit for Leo Sayer. These are all songs that Sonny Curtis wrote, and other than the one for Mary Tyler Moore, they were all Crickets singles after Buddy Holly died. But just to to mention, the other reason that Paul McCartney bought the song catalog was because of this movie, and he wanted to make his own accurate movie about Buddy Holly and undo all the myths. So there's a, a documentary that McCartney produces and narrates called The Real Buddy Holly Story. And he goes and interviews, this was made in the 1980s, and he goes and interviews Sonny Curtis and Jerry Allison and Joby Maudlin. Uh, By that time, Norman Petty was already dead, but he does interview Petty's wife. And they go to the Clovis studio and she gives a tour of where they made the records and where everything was back in the 50s. This would be 25 to 30 years later. And then they they handle in that documentary all of the uh, things that uh, the movie got wrong, which is everything. I mean, every scene in the movie is wrong. Even the the whole, that was the other one I forgot, was the whole narrative about his parents not liking the music and kind of pressuring him to go get a real job. None of that's true either. His parents were very supportive. In fact, his mom co-wrote one of my favorite Buddy Holly songs, which was Maybe Baby. I think she came up with the line, maybe, baby, I'll have you, and maybe some more of it, and probably the the original melody, and then Buddy went and wrote the rest of the song. So right from the beginning of the movie, oh, and the other thing is that they show Buddy Holly having a girlfriend named Cindy Lou in the movie who couldn't be more annoying and wants Buddy to go to college with her instead of playing rock and roll. So... She bears no resemblance to Buddy Holly's real girlfriend, who was named Echo McGuire. And about the only resemblance to his life in that whole dynamic where he kind of dumps her abruptly at the bus station is that Echo did not want to go on with Buddy and become the wife of a professional musician. She was deeply religious, as was Buddy, and she wanted to have the kind of quiet life you wouldn't have with a a rock and roll musician for a husband. And he was very hurt. It was actually her that broke up with him. And he was extremely wounded by this, as all young men are when they're in love. So she was nothing, though, like the Cindy Lou 
in the movie. Cindy Lou is actually the name of, I believe, Buddy's niece, one of his brother's daughters. And it was true that this song, Peggy Sue, was originally called Cindy Lou, and it had kind of a Latin rhythm, which was really popular at the time. And that's how they were going to, to do it. And it was Jerry Allison who was going out and later married Peggy Sue, who asked, who was broken up with his girlfriend at the time and asked Buddy to rename the song Peggy Sue instead of Cindy Lou. So a few words about that when and, and about the songwriting credits in general. When the song came out, Buddy Holly is not listed as one of the songwriters, although I, I believe that other than changing the name to Peggy Sue, I think that Buddy wrote the rest of the song. There's all kinds of stuff with the songwriting credits, and the reason Buddy's not on there as a songwriter is they were actually trying to hide the songwriting credits to some extent from Decca. Now, what gets really weird is that Buddy had two recording contracts at once, and this was a strategy by these record companies. They're both subsidiaries of Decca Records. Decca would not allow Buddy to re-record any of the songs he had recorded for Decca for five years, including That'll Be the Day. And that's why they put That'll Be the Day out under the name The Crickets. Buddy Holly's name does not appear on there. But he does appear in a songwriting credit. But you'll notice that if you look at the songwriting credits of a lot of Buddy's songs, his name isn't on some. On one, I think it's Maybe Baby, and I'm going from memory here, he's listed as Charles Harden, which is his first and middle name. But on Peggy Sue, he's not there at all. And later, after Buddy's death and reissues of Peggy Sue, Jerry Allison insisted that his name be inserted on as the songwriter to get the royalties from that song because he knew that Buddy had actually written it. Another thing about the songwriting royalties, and Norman Petty is criticized for putting his name on as a songwriter, even though he didn't contribute to any of the songwriting. And you have to understand that at the time, and this goes with, I know Harry Belafonte's records, because my dad was a big fan of his, along with Chuck Berry, the only rock and roll that roll artist that my dad said was not a bum. But at the time, getting your name onto the songwriting credits was just a way for you to get additional royalties. And in a lot of cases, producers and artists who perform the songs would put their name on the song or make that a contractual a contractual condition of recording this so they would get those additional royalties. And for example, Elvis Presley did not co-write any of the few songs he's given credit for, but when someone would pitch a new song to him being a big, huge star already, he would then require that they allow him to put his name on there just as for financial reasons. And it seems like people didn't care as much about the songwriting credits as they do today about the accuracy of those. It was purely financial. And for example, there's a later song called Reminiscing. That's another one of my favorites that Buddy Holly wrote and recorded. And he wanted the sax player King Curtis to play sax. So he 
offered King Curtis the songwriting credit as a way of compensating him for coming down to Clovis to record the song because he didn't have the money at the time to pay him. So if you look up that song reminiscing, it says just Curtis as the only songwriting credit. And of course, King Curtis did not write any of that song. He just got the credit as compensation for his phenomenal saxophone playing on the track. So the only other thing I'll say about Norman Petty, besides his importance as a producer, is that you know when you read the biographies of Holly and when you know a little bit about the music business and how musicians are, it becomes very apparent that Petty put in a lot, a lot, a lot of free hours in recording the, the crickets and Buddy Holly's music. He would charge them per song, and then they would, you know go for hours and hours and hours, days sometimes, so they got it right. There was actually spare rooms off the studio with cots where they would sleep so they could get up, you know, get, get a few hours sleep and get back up and get back to recording. So the fact that Petty asked to have his name or, or got that into the contract to have his name on the songwriting credits, I think was compensation for the fact that he didn't make very much money producing the band as a producer. As today, they would get millions of dollars to go produce some successful recording act. At the time, he was getting this little flat fee per song, so he wasn't really making a lot on the studio on the songs. And then, of course, they they were only paying him as a manager to book the band. So that was a little extra money that he would get to make up for you know some of the investment of his time and his resources that he put in with his studio. So I guess the only other thing I'll say about the influence of Buddy Holly was it wasn't just the Beatles. The Rolling Stones' first top 10 hit in England and first single in the United States was Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away. Linda Ronstant covered, had big hits covering It's So Easy and That'll Be the Day by Buddy Holly in the 1970s. The Hollies group actually named their group after Buddy Holly, calling themselves the Hollies. And the list goes on and on of people who credit him with inspiring their musical careers. Just a few other classics. In addition to That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue, also the classic song Every Day, which has been covered by dozens and dozens of artists, although they still play the Buddy Holly recording of that to this day on the radio, and it appears in commercials and what have you. Two songs which were actually covers written by a gentleman named Sonny West, which are classics, Oh Boy and Rave On. Those are both not written by Buddy Holly, but he made versions that were so definitive that when asked, Sonny West, when asked of Buddy Holly's version of his song, Oh Boy, the one, All of My Love, All of My Kissin', he said, well, once Buddy Holly did it, it was his song because he he injected so much energy and, and spirit into it that just weren't there in the Sunny West versions, which you can find on YouTube now. Of course, I mentioned Maybe Baby, It's So Easy, a great classic called Heartbeat that was actually also written by his former partner, Bob Montgomery. And then there's a whole bunch of what are now quasi-classics, they were never released until after Buddy died, but he made recordings in his apartment, which they tried to graft full band arrangements onto, and that includes Peggy Sue Got Married, 
crying, waiting, hoping that the Beatles also used to do in their club act. And you can hear in their BBC recordings, True Love Ways and and some others. And he did some covers during those apartment tapes, as they call them now. But even with, try, they, they, tried, they grafted a band onto these recordings, which were obviously not made with the intention of being released. Buddy's just playing acoustic guitar and he's singing in a way that you can tell he's trying to be quiet because he's in his New York apartment and he's got this Ampeg recording equipment. And the other thing I'll say, this was all live. Everything you hear is live. There was very little overdubbing. Overdubbing was very experimental in the 1950s when he recorded his music. So for the most part, you had to do the song beginning to end with everybody nailing their parts. And for the most part, they do that. Of course, Buddy did overdub his own harmony onto Words of Love, which I encourage everyone who's familiar with the Beatle version to listen to to hear how much different he sings it. He sings it a lot more like a solo singer of the 50s, even though he's doing a duet with himself. And the Beatles are much straighter. They're much more, you know, um, hold me close and tell me how you feel, where Buddy Holly's got a lot of cesura in there and a little more style. And so again, it's, it's just incredible that he made this many classic songs in from about summer of 1957 until just before he went on that winter tour in early 1950. All of this happened and all the influence that he had on all these people was all what he accomplished in these 18 months and certainly contributed greatly to what became rock music. I don't think we would have the concept of the two guitar, bass, and drums lineup that is the basis for so many bands if Buddy Holly hadn't pioneered that, or at least we wouldn't have had it till later. And of course, he was integral to bringing rhythm and blues to white audiences in the 50s. And uh, you know this whole modern idea that the early rock and roll period was white performers culturally appropriating African-American music is just so far from the truth. In, in reality, like these people admired each other. And of course, rock and roll is not purely rhythm and blues. Without country music and Western swing, it would not have become what it was. And in fact, it's kind of curious when I link up Holly and Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry's first hit was a song he wrote called Maybelline, which was a country song. So you had this rhythm and blues guitar player playing a country song that he partly lifted from a, a country song called Ida Red. And then, of course, you have Buddy Holly, who was previously a white country singer, singing this blues shuffle. That'll be the day that he wrote. So it was very much an integration of not only the music of these people, but of these people who all admired each other, loved each other, suffered on those tours. Those Alan Freed tours would have dozens of acts and they, they were all crammed into a bus and would go from town to town, each playing only a few songs per night. And that was how those early rock and roll shows were done. So if you went to one, you might see a dozen acts each playing three songs rather than you know an opening band playing 45 minutes, and then the main act playing an hour and a half. While some parts of white society did not like the fact that this 
you know, African-American music, Negro music, as they used to call it, was being introduced to white audiences. <laughs> I mean, you have to remember the problem for them was that for the most part, white audiences loved the music and white performers loved the, the music and black performers loved the country players and adopted some of the aspects of country music into their own music. So, you know, what the, the left-wingers are always craving for, this integration, this you know, seamless integration between people of different races, that was there in early rock and roll. Of course, you know, capitalism was a major uh, factor in that happening. Let's not forget the invisible hand. People like Sam Phillips at Sun Records saw profits to be made in getting white performers to sing this African-American style music and also to bring black performers to white audiences. So they may have been doing it just for profits, but they did a lot more for in integration than most political activists, as did the owners of baseball teams that, that brought black athletes finally into the baseball league around the same time. So while not a brawler who would have punched Owen Bradley for making a, a racial epithet, which, of course, he did not do during those sessions, none of that happened. Buddy Holly, just by living his life and pursuing his music and the people he admired, moved the ball forward on integration, maybe, of course, also without setting out to do so in, in a political manner. So it's getting rather long here. I know I could talk all day about this guy. There's so much more to tell, but I'll post some links to some things you might be interested in on the show notes page and take a few minutes today and put the great Buddy Holly on your Spotify or YouTube or whatever you listen to music and uh, listen to some of those classic recordings. It'll do you some good. I think you'll enjoy them if you haven't heard them before. As I said on Monday, I've got a lot of great guests coming up. It looks like Colonel McGregor is on vacation until the week after next. So it looks like that's when we'll have him here. I've got a couple of more I'm lining up, and I'm not exactly sure who will be with us on Friday. You'll have to wait and see. Again, check out my page, TomMullenTalksFreedom.com, and you can click on support if you want to become a paid subscriber to either my Patreon or my Substack, and if you want to hear some more of some of the music I've talked about and you've heard on the breaks on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear that at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.